So today we're going to look at the subject of suffering, a subject that I know that some of you are all too familiar with. So I hope today to extract some practical nuggets of wisdom from Peter as to how we should understand suffering and how we can best equip ourselves to keep faith during a season of trial. But before I do that, I'm going to tell you a story about my first encounter of trial after I became a Christian, mostly because it's the perfect illustration of how not to respond. So um, some years ago, James, my husband, and I used to have a company. It's a franchise company that franchises a dance called Siroc. Subsequent to coming to faith, we saw that that was our ministry. In fact, I would say I felt as called to my role that I had there as I feel called to the role that I have here. One day, we arrived at work to discover a white envelope on the doormat. On opening it, we found that our franchisees had been holding clandestine meetings in which we didn't know about and in which they had agreed amongst themselves that they would only pay a fee towards us that was unsustainable, and if we didn't agree to that, they were all going to leave. This came as a, a great shock to me. I had thought that we had really good relations with our franchisees. It took a while to sink in, but the more I thought about it, the more devastated I was. You see, in one fail swoop, everything I'd invested in and believed in to the core of my being was decimated. The business that we'd built up over a decade and had seen so secure was about to be annihilated. The friendships we'd built up over the years seemed to be irredeemably damaged. And my relationship with God was all but obliterated. To be honest, I wasn't that fussed about losing the company or the money because that was never really what motivated me but I was really heartbroken that those friendships, which I valued a great deal and into which I had invested much, had all in one fell sweep been destroyed. However, worse still, it struck at the core of my identity in Christ. I was bewildered how this could happen from a God perspective. After all, I genuinely believed I was doing the thing God was calling me to do. And if that was the case, how come he had allowed it to happen? Were we, in fact, mistaken in thinking we were doing his work? Were we, in fact, building our own empire and not his kingdom? Was God angry with us? Was he punishing for something we had done? And if not, what was happening? Was it because he wasn't actually powerful enough to stop it? Was the situation out of his control for some reason? And was my faith in vain? Or perhaps he'd just abandoned us in our time of need? Or was it, as I'd long suspected, that we weren't quite good enough to be part of the family of God? Round and round it went in my head. I'd go to sleep stressing about it and wake up in a cold sweat thinking about it. Even church had lost its luster. Instead of being the place which I went to to encounter God, it was a place that I walked into and felt like a fraud. The situation with our company wasn't great, but what was a far greater concern to me was the state of my faith, which I had thought was fairly robust, but in the opening of that white envelope had all been blown out of the water. So, that's clearly not how to do it. Now let's look at what Peter teaches is a more appropriate way to respond to suffering. 
In this talk, I'm going to be highlighting just four of Peter's teachings that I wish I had understood all those years ago when I opened that envelope. Peter's first pithy point can be found at the start of the passage which was just read in verse 12. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has taken place amongst you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. In fact, it can be found in the opening word, beloved. His first pithy point is, in your suffering, know you are beloved. Thank you. Having given their lives to Christ and done their best to live a life of faith, these people must have been asking the same questions that I was asking when I opened that white envelope. Was God angry with them? Was it a punishment? Was he powerless, unable to help them? Or has he forgotten or abandoned them? Surely Satan is delighted if anybody chooses to believe any of those lies because they render the believer incapable of withstanding any fiery trial that is sent against them. With those questions in mind, Peter deliberately opens the passage with the word, beloved. This isn't a casual salutation to endear his readers like, dear Janie, or even dearest Janie. Let's remember this passage is towards the end of the letter. When Peter uses the word beloved, he does so to denote their status before God. He wants them to know that although they are despised and rejected by the world, they are objects of God's immeasurable, unchanging love. Because Peter knows that if they're going to be able to withstand the persecution heading their way, they need to have the utmost confidence in the fact that their suffering, that the, that the suffering they are facing does not reflect God's disinterest or displeasure. That they have not been forgotten or abandoned but their status before God is eternal and immutable. They are beloved. When we're suffering, be it through persecution or through ill health, through depression, through a breakdown in relationship, through financial trauma, through an eating disorder, an addiction, or as the result of anything else, whatever our circumstances, we need to know that we are beloved of God. The reason this is vital is because, like a house in an earthquake, the firmness of this foundation will make the difference between our survival and our being buried as our world collapses around us. If we're to survive our fiery ordeal, we need to know that our God loves us passionately. He loves us so much he went to the cross to die for us. And although I had been told that on many occasions by the time we came into our crisis, I'd always had the sneaking suspicion that God loved everybody else, but he wasn't quite so keen on me. And as a result, I nearly lost my faith when life got rough. You see, the journey that these words have to travel from our head to our heart is a long and tr a dangerous journey. However, its completion is essential to our spiritual well-being. For me, believing I was loved was a full-on battle, but I was determined to win it. 
So every night before I went to sleep, I'd ask God to forgive me for believing the lies that the enemy had spoken over me through other people, through friends, family, or even through myself. And I would read the verses of scripture telling me about my status before God. And I would pray that God would help me believe them. At the same time, even though I felt like crawling into a cave, I talked about the issue with my small group and they encouraged me and prayed for me. I also arranged to meet with a mentor to talk through the roots of my struggles and receive prayer. And every Sunday I would come forward and receive prayer from the ministry team. In truth, it was a long and laborious battle, but I came out the champion. And that has stood me in great stead for future fiery trials. Okay, so that's Peter's first pithy point. In your suffering, let's try that again. In your suffering, fabulous. Um, I've taken his second pithy point from exactly the same sentence. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter's second pithy point is, in your suffering, know that God is in control. I used to believe the Bible taught that if you pray hard enough and live a good life, you will live happily ever after like any good fairy tale. However, when things got difficult, I nearly lost my faith because I noticed that that was blatantly not the case. And it wasn't right and it wasn't what Christ taught. During his ministry, Christ spent a significant amount of time teaching his disciples not only that he was going to suffer, but they would face hardships too. He called those who followed him to take up their cross and follow him, not to take up their cushion and have a nice little sit down. What I needed to know when I felt my world was collapsing around me what Peter needed to know when he stood in Caiaphas's courtyard, and the, what the persecuted church needed to know as they awaited that knock on their door, was that going through fiery, fiery trials is an intrinsic part of what it means to be a Christian, and that God is still in control of the master plan. These trials may well be the enemy's attempt to destroy us, that is, after all, what he was trying to do when he put Jesus on a cross. But ultimately, God is in control of the master plan, as the resurrection shows. And what the enemy meant for evil, God intends for good. So, pithy point number one, know you are beloved. Pithy point number two, know that God is con in control. And... I am now taking nugget number three from verses 13 to 18. In your suffering, choose to worship. In verse 13, Peter instructs his persecuted flock to rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings. Say that again. Rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings. Rejoice in our suffering. Really, Peter? Keep, up, keep a stiff upper lip, maybe, but rejoice? Surely that's paradoxical. But I guess Christianity is full of paradoxes. In Matthew 5, Jesus teaches, blessed are the persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. In verses 13 to 16, Peter explains why he believes we have reason to rejoice in our suffering. In verse 13, he expands. But rejoice in so far as you are sharing Christ's sufferings, so that you may be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. Those who are undergoing fiery trials have every reason to rejoice because it's a privilege to share in the fellowship with Christ in his sufferings, but it's a privilege that will bring us great joy when his glory is revealed. Our troubles in the here and now are transient, but our glorious inheritance is eternal. Or, as Paul puts it in his letter to the Romans, our present sufferings aren't worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. In verse 14, Peter explains, you are blessed because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. So what he's saying is that those who suffer are blessed because God doesn't leave them on their own. His glory is upon them. His spirit accompanies them every step of the way. And in verse 16, Peter goes on to instruct his readers to praise God that they bear his name when they are suffering, because it's a privilege. When I was a new Christian, uh, I went to a prayer meeting in which uh, one of the elders was asked for his advice. The inquirer was a middle-aged man who was going through a period of life where everything that could possibly go wrong was going wrong. He wanted to know if the elder had any advice as to how he could get through the season spiritually, so to speak. The elder's advice seemed a bit insubstantial to me at the time, but since then I've learned it's probably the best advice he could have given. He said, the best advice I can give you is to worship. I know there are many other things I could say, but for myself, I have found that worship is paramount in times of suffering. You see, when we worship, for a few short minutes, we take our eyes off our problems and place them on God. And in so doing, we remember who God is, our omnipotent Father, who looks on us as beloved, who is in control of the master plan and is worthy of our praise. And as we get his perspective on our situation, we are reminded how great he is even greater than the issues that we are wrestling with. When I had my first experience of a fiery trial as a Christian, the last thing I felt like doing was worshiping. But this meant that in my mind, my problems were way larger than God was. And now pleased to say that I have since learned to worship in all circumstances, in spite of what I'm feeling like. Because I've learned that as I enter his courts and lose myself in worship, I also enter his peace, the peace of God which transcends all understanding that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When I first became a Christian, I understood that praise and worship were for benefit of God alone, that he liked us all to sort of suck up to him. But I now know that the main beneficiaries of worship are actually ourselves. 
that worship is actually an invaluable tool in our fiery trials. So let's recap. In your suffering, know that you are beloved. In your suffering, know that God is in control. And in your suffering, choose to worship. And now I'd like to finish with Peter's fourth and final pithy point, taken from verse 19. In your suffering, entrust yourself to God. Verse 19 reads, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator. The word commit, or it's sometimes translated as entrust, is actually a banking term, meaning to deposit for safekeeping. Jesus placed his life in its entirety in the bank of his heavenly father, trusting that he was loving, that he was just, and that he was in control of the master plan. At Gethsemane, he prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And at his death, quoting Psalm 31, he said, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. It can be tempting to invest only part of ourselves into God's bank. But in the same way that Christ gave up everything for us, we are called to let go of all our rights for him. God is, after all, the safest bank in the world. Anywhere else that you invest your life will prove to be a failure. If we know that we're beloved of God, that he's in control of the master plan, and that praise and worship are blessings, then like Jesus, we will be able to deposit our lives, the good, the bad, and the ugly, into the bank that hands down pays the most interest the bank of our Heavenly Father. I believe this letter was invaluable to those facing persecution. I know that if I had learned those truths all those year ago, years ago when I opened that white envelope, my reaction would have been a bit different. I would still have had to endure the same trial, but I would have done so knowing that God loved me, that I wouldn't have to walk through the trials alone, but that he would be with me, and that whatever it may look like, he was actually in control of the, system, of the situation. Knowing that I would have been able to go through the turbulence with peace in my heart, entrusting my welfare to the eternal, loving, omnipotent Father. <laughs>